Hey, would you, would you pray with me? Let's pray real fast. Lord Jesus, we pray that tonight in this space, the loudest voice in the room will be your Holy Spirit's. Lord, just speak to us. Um, meet us here. In your name we pray. Amen. The way John tells it, it was before the sun rose when Mary Magdalene started her way toward the tomb, having had a fitful night of sleep, reliving the images of her good friend, Jesus, being killed on a cross brutally. He was the only guy that had ever really treated her with respect. Every other guy treated her differently, but Jesus had a way of making her feel valuable, and so she was going to go and make sure he got a proper burial. She was meeting some other women there, and they got to the tomb, and they realized and recognized that something was wrong because the stone was moved, was rolled away. John tells us she went over to the tomb. She looked inside. There was no body there. He was gone, and she freaked out, and she ran back to where the disciples were locked in a room, holed up, fearful for their lives, not sure what to do next. She knocked on the door and said, hey, they've taken the Lord. They've taken his body, and I don't know where they've taken it. They've stolen his body. You've got to come. And I love how John tells it because he says that immediately Peter and John left that room and started to run. He, t- he says that John beat Peter to the tomb, <laughs> which is kind of funny. And he got there, and Peter ran into the tomb, and sure enough, nobody. And it tells us that John and Peter went back to their homes. But Mary, she stayed. She stayed at the tomb, and she cried. She wept. And she cried. And when she looked in a second time, there were two angels inside saying, Mary, why are you crying? What's the matter? And she kind of tells her story, and then she turns around to go out of the tomb again, and there's a guy there. She thinks he's the gardener. And she keeps crying, and he says, why are you crying, Mary? And he calls her by name, and she recognizes, hey, that's, that's Jesus. And she runs back to the room where Peter and John are, and says, hey, I've seen the Lord. He's alive. He's alive. I'm serious. He's alive. You should check it out. Well, over the next several days, they got a chance to check it out because Jesus appeared to them several times, right? In a variety of ways. But here's my question on this Easter 2014. Did these guys really understand what had happened on that first Easter morning? Did they understand the significance, the implications of this resurrection from the dead? Did they understand the deep crack in the universe that had been healed the moment that tomb cracked open and Jesus walked out? Do you think they got it? I mean, if we read the Bible carefully, it would seem to indicate they didn't get it at all. It would seem to indicate that they pretty much missed the point. From the things they said to the questions they asked to the way they acted for the next 40 days would indicate they didn't really get what was going on. But before we really get too hard on them, we should probably look in the mirror. Because here's the question for you on Easter 2014. Do you really get what happened on that first Easter morning? Have you really figured out the implications of that resurrection for your life today? Where you live, where you work, how you live, how you work, how you treat other people. If people run into you on the streets, do they say, wow, something is transcendently different about this person? Something has happened in them that's very different. It's interesting because really both they and us should have gotten it. Because God tried to paint us pictures for thousands of years before it ever happened. To try to help us understand what it meant. If you go in the Old Testament, it's amazing. The pictures God paints, you know, God's amazing because 
he knows he can't put into language the power of the resurrection. There's no English word that really sums up what happened on that particular Easter morning. So instead, he paints pictures using physical realities to try to help us understand a spiritual reality that's beyond our words. So he says things like a vineyard grows up and fruit is grown. He says things like a heart of stone is turned into a heart of flesh. He says there's a valley full of dry bones and the bones grow flesh and they stand up and when God breathes on them, they start to dance around. These images are meant to give us a picture of what God was going to release into the world on that first Easter morning. The most compelling one of these images is actually found in Ezekiel chapter 47. I'd like to read through it a little bit with you and explain it. And uh, it goes like this. Ezekiel 47, verses 1 through 9. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. So let me just help you with this now. So if you're in Israel, the temple in Israel faces east toward the desert. So we'll pretend that's east. Okay, so you're facing the temple. You're looking at the temple, the front of it. And there's a desert that runs from Jerusalem 18 miles to the Dead Sea. It's just nothing but wilderness. Dry, dusty, cracked, no water, no plants, nothing for 18 miles. The Dead Sea, the saltiest sea in the world, nothing lives in it. It's completely dead. You can get in it and bob like a cork, literally. I've been in it. I can read a book in there. You won't drown. It's so salty, you just float and pop like a cork. So there's this giant wasteland in front of the temple. And here's this picture Ezekiel's getting. He sees this water that comes in the, starts in the temple, trickles out the south side of the temple, turns eastward, and starts to flow toward the desert. Okay? Make sense? Let's keep reading. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off 1,500 feet that led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another 1,500 feet, led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another 1,000 feet and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another 1,500 feet, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in. A river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the wilderness where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the Dead Sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Now, this is an amazing picture that God's giving us about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This river grows in width and depth and length as it leaves the temple. It's ankle deep, knee deep, waist deep, and then over your head. And I love that phrase, wherever the river touches... Life springs up. The source of this river is God himself. That's why it comes from the temple. And basically, Ezekiel's painting us a picture of the implications of Jesus' powerful resurrection from the dead. 
He's giving us an image, a physical image, that people in Israel would have related to. Ancient Israelites, they would have related to this image because they understood what living water was. See, in Israel, there's a water problem. In ancient Israel especially, there was a water problem. And so there were three sources of water. You could first dig a well. So Abraham and Isaac, you saw those guys in Genesis digging wells down deep and eventually get to water. But at the bottom of the well, there's a lot of silt and dirt and stuff in the water. But you can still live off that water. It's okay. Another source of water in Israel was to build a cistern. I've been in cisterns almost as big as this particular room, believe it or not. And they're plastered, the walls are plastered, and they gather rainwater, and the water lays in there stagnantly in the cool, dark space in the cistern. You can scoop it out and drink it as you need to. That's the second source of water in Israel. So you can have a well, you can have a cistern, or you can find a spring of living water. All through Israel, under the ground, run springs of living water. They're rapidly flowing streams, and I'm telling you, when this water bubbles to the surface, it is the most life-giving, refreshing, amazing kind of water in the world. Yeah, when I was in Israel uh, several years ago, we hiked through the wilderness for about four hours. The wilderness is so dry and hot, and it, it zaps your energy. It takes your breath away at times. You long to get into, like, the shade You long for relief. You can't drink enough water in the wilderness. It's like 125 degrees in the shade. It's a miserable place to be. So for four hours, we hiked through the wilderness, and we we just felt terrible. We smelled terrible. You can imagine. The thing is, you're sweating, but the sweat dries before it even gets on your shirt. So you can't tell anyone's sweating because it's so hot there. And our our teacher, our guide, led us to a spring of living water in Getty. David drank from the stream 3,000 years ago. It bubbled up from the surface, and it created a waterfall. When I saw that waterfall, I got in. <laughs> I want to get in. I got in, and I let it run over my head. And for the next hour, I sat in that waterfall. It was unbelievable because life started to return to me. I tilted my head back, and I, I drank some of the water. I just let it run over my body. And I started to feel better and feel refreshed. In fact, it even cleaned me. When I came out of the water and my shirt dried, I didn't even have to wash it. Seriously, it was totally clean. That's the power of living water in the scripture. So every Jewish person would have understood this image that God is painting for them. This promise of a living water stream that would go into the dry and cracked places of life and bring life wherever it touched, wherever it flowed. Now, it's cool because Jesus, you know, he gets this dream, right? He's actually lived in it because he came from heaven and understands what it's like to be in the stream of God's living water. So when he comes on earth, again, he tries to join God in painting these pictures for the people to help them understand what it is that he's, he's offering. So in John chapter 7, he's at a fest- festival called the Feast of Tabernacles. And he's there at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, Feast of Tabernacles is when you built a booth for yourself it celebrated God's care of his people in the wilderness. So you build this booth, it had no sides, and you would celebrate the fact that God would provide for you and protect you, and everything you needed would come from him. Now here's what else happened at the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles, they would actually go every day to the pool of Siloam, about a quarter mile away. They'd take a pitcher, dip it into the living water there, they'd carry it back to the temple, and they'd pour it over the altar And they danced with palm branches around the altar. And they did this every day for six days. 
You know what they were trying to create? The river from Ezekiel. They wanted to manufacture it. They were longing for it to come. These people needed God's power. So they danced with a frenzy trying to bring that river about. On the seventh day of the feast, the last and greatest day of the feast, they went to the pool of Siloam. They scooped up seven pitchers full of water from the living water and brought it back seven times and poured it over the altar and danced even more fervently around the altar trying to create this stream of living water. If you go to John chapter 7, it says this. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And streams of living water will flow from within him. Wow. If anyone is thirsty, I mean, these people were dying of thirst. They were struggling. They were living in a dry place. They were trying to, with all their religious power, manufacture this river of living water that God was offering. But no matter how much they danced, they couldn't make it happen. And Jesus is basically saying, look, it's here. It's me. Through my resurrection from the dead, this river is going to be released into the world. Now that question could be asked to all of us tonight. Is anyone here thirsty? I'm not talking about physical thirst. I mean, most of you probably haven't been in the wilderness and had your energy sapped away and had your life sucked out of you by the heat. But we've all been in a spiritual wilderness, haven't we? It's called suburbia. You live there? Yeah, I was reading in uh, the news this week that now uh, Naperville, instead of being the second safest place in America to live and the second place place to raise your kids, I believe in the last year, 37 people have died of heroin overdoses in this community. People are thirsty. I was talking to my neighbor who lost his job. He said to me, you know, uh, Klein, I would love to get a job with purpose, but I'm just chasing a number now. I got to pay my bills. I got to keep this lifestyle going that we started with my family. I just got to get it done. I was talking to another woman who was a 50-year-old single mom. And she was telling me how she's sick of hanging out with couples. She's so lonely. But she doesn't know what to do, how to, how to deal with that. I was over at my friend's house the other night because he just relapsed into his alcoholic behavior. If I look around me, even within the church, people are thirsty. Some people hide it really well. Other people admit it. But it seems to leak out from under the veneer of our nicely manicured lawns and painted houses. When you look really carefully, every once in a while you get a glimpse of the thirst that's going on. Deep down, we are thirsty. Deep down, there's dry, rocky, dusty places inside. And the question is, when you're thirsty and you have to have a drink, because when you're thirsty, you know how it is, right? When you're thirsty, you've got to get a drink. The question is, where do you go to get your spiritual thirst quenched? Where do you turn? 
When you're thirsty and you recognize it, where do you go? What do you do? There's a disturbing verse in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 2 verse 13. It says like this. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the stream of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. In other words, you're thirsty, you recognize it, and just like me, we go everywhere else but to the source of life. We turn all kinds of places to quench our thirst, but to the one place our thirst can really be quenched. God longs for his people to turn to him. You know, just picture this. I I have four kids. When they were little, you know, I was their daddy, right? Now they're 13, 15, 17, 19, now, you know, whatever. They're they're teenagers. They've lost their minds now. You know what I'm saying? But when they were little, right, they had it going on. So, you know, I was their daddy. When they were two, four, six, and eight, I was their daddy. Now, let's just say that one of my kids got hurt, bumped his knee, bruised his elbow, I don't know, just hurt themselves, and they came running in this crowded room, and their dad was up here in the spotlights talking, and of course, right, they'd come to me, right? But instead of running to me, they ran to that Darcy character. Because she's a very comforting, gentle soul, I can tell. And they said, Darcy, help me, Darcy, I hurt my knee. What's going to happen? I'm going to be up here going, hey, wait, 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 wait a minute. What's the problem here? What are you doing? She's not your mom. She's not your dad. You come to your dad. I can help you with your stuff. What if my wife, for instance, who's here tonight, what if she came in the room and she said, I just need a hug. I just need to know that I'm loved. But instead of coming to me, she went to Dan Vanderwall, hugged him. He's one of my former students, so I can pick on him a little bit. So, and she said, Dan, Dan, I need a hug. Dan, can you give me a hug? I'm going to be up here going, wait a minute. Honey, what are you doing? I'm your source of love. I picture God up in heaven sometimes just going, hey, hello, what are you people doing? What are you thinking? Here I am. My river of living water is flowing. And don't you know, don't you love that river? It's ankle deep, knee deep, waist deep, over your head. Man, it's crazy. So many of us, when we're thirsty, we go dabble along the edge of the river. We get up in our toes and we play with the water. Really? When I was in Israel uh, a couple years ago, I was with a guide Ray Vanderlaan, and he took us to uh, En Gedi also, and there was a pool there. We had been hiking in the wilderness for probably eight hours. We were miserable. We were thirsty. We were dying of thirst. And he started talking again, like these guides do, right? And we're thinking, great. We're dying of thirst. We're sitting right next to this water. We can't even get in now. This guy's going to give us another lecture about whatever this is, right? So he starts talking. He says, you know, when you're thirsty, you don't just stand by the edge of the water. You don't just dabble in the stream with your fingers. You jump in. And then he jumped in. <laughs> Literally. Threw his Bible, jumped in. We all followed him. Pretty soon there's a whole bunch of us in this pool. But you know, think about that picture. God's offer is of a river of life that wherever it touches, life springs forth. Wherever it touches, life springs forth. And so many of us in the American church, we're sitting up in our ankles going, oh, okay. I guess I'll play around with this a little bit. Instead of jumping in, getting over our heads, drinking deeply of this amazing living water that can bring us life that goes way beyond any other life we've ever experienced. 
Oswald Chambers says it like this. Christ is claiming the ability to satisfy the deepest need of the human heart. Yet we are strangely reluctant to come directly to him. We will attend ceremonies and observe sacraments. We will follow men and congregate in meetings. We will frequent camps and conventions. We will listen to priests and preachers, anything it would seem, except come personally and alone into the presence of Christ. But he is absolutely intolerant. He will quench our spiritual thirst personally, but not by proxy. Now the Jewish people, they had a, a way of tangibly entering into this living water experience. They were a very tangible people. They, they wanted to use these symbols that God had given them to really uh, commit themselves to this way of life that God had for them. Um, they had a thing called a mikvah. A mikvah literally means in Hebrew a gathering, a gathering of waters. And uh, the, the Hebrews would actually gather living water into a pool, and then they would go to the synagogue, and on their way to the synagogue, they would stop by the pool, and they would say to the Lord, Lord, we're sorry we've turned everywhere else to quench our thirst. But today, before we go into this synagogue to worship, we're going to turn from all that broken cisterns, and we're going to commit ourselves to this way of living water. And then, as a celebration of their newfound commitment to this way of life, they would actually go in the water. So everybody that went to church back in that time came in wet. <laughs> that, was, I, that was what I wanted to do, actually, tonight. I was hoping you guys would all just go through the water, but they wouldn't go for it. So we went with this other way. <laughs> they all went in wet because they were trying to say to God, we're going to completely submerge ourselves in this river and let your life flow through us. We want to appropriate this life and make it our life. Tonight, we have prepared some mikvahs. These silver boxes all across the front, and there's more in the atrium, are filled with water, living water. Now, let's face it, these are just, you know, regular old water things, right? So, there's nothing magical about the water. But there's something powerful about leaving your seat if you're thirsty and coming to the water and letting God know that you want to celebrate and appropriate this amazing resurrection life into your life. That you want this God, this Jesus to wash over you. That you want to drink deeply of this water and take him in all over again. The way the Jewish people practice this nowadays, they come to the water like this, they take the water and they say, Lord, we will commit our minds to this living way of life. We will commit our feet to walk this path of living water. We will give our hearts to this way, this way that is beyond all ways, this, this living way of life that you offer. And we will offer our hands 
to follow you fully into the power of this resurrection life.